We're in Proverbs uh, again today, and probably next week I'm going to jump right back into where I left off in Luke, but we'll be in Proverbs chapter number 10. I'm really excited about the message today. Uh, As you know, I I spent uh, my time in Arizona studying the subject of joy, and then I also spent my time reading Psalms and, and Proverbs. And because of my schedule, I was blessed to be able to, to read Proverbs through in one sitting each day. And that was, that was just, that was a blessing from the Lord. That was just so good to be able to just sit down and read it through. And, and the reason for that is that, that much of Proverbs is, is very encouraging, isn't it? Uh, Proverbs is, is encouraging. The, the first nine chapters teach us what true wisdom is. What is true wisdom? Well, true wisdom is moving towards the Lord and away from ourselves. True wisdom is moving towards the Lord and away from ourselves. Biblical wisdom is not the same as worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is says that wisdom is taking the knowledge that you know and applying it to life. Would you agree generally that's what we think wisdom is? Biblical wisdom is not that. Wisdom in the Bible is primarily righteousness and uprightness. How do we know that? Well, Proverbs starts out, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge is another place it says it. So that's righteousness and uprightness. It's a moral quality. We we understand this because this is how Proverbs begins. And, And wisdom in Proverbs is repeatedly contrasted with some form of unrighteousness. And so... Between the definition of wisdom from Proverbs and the way it's contrasted with unrighteousness, we realize that wisdom is primarily moral quality. Now, that's the first nine chapters of Proverbs. The, the scattershot Proverbs of like Proverbs 10 to 22, Proverbs 25 to 29, where you've got all these, it just looks like random offers of wisdom, they must be read within the framework that's erected in Proverbs 1 to 9. Because though it may be easy to find practical advice on topics such as financial management, friendship, influence, leadership, communication, we, we must be careful that we don't divorce this from the advice to fear the Lord. Because fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, all the advice that you find in Proverbs is intended to draw a person closer to the Lord. Receiving counsel from Him, rejecting the seduction of loving self, and rejecting the seduction of self-reliance, And this advice really only works in a world where believers are trusting in a wisdom from above 
and an alien righteousness from above and a righteousness that comes through faith. If you don't do that, then you're not practicing true biblical wisdom. Now, Proverbs paints some vivid pictures, doesn't it? I I love the pictures in Proverbs. One of the pictures that appears in Proverbs is fountain of life. You've heard of of the fountain of life, right? Um, For example, Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn from the snares of death. Isn't that interesting? The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn from the snares of death. Now, there are two concepts here that remind me of other places in Scripture. The first one is fountain of life. That concept is um, found in other scriptures. For example, Psalm 36, verse number 9, which we looked at in January, says, For with you is a fountain of life. In your light we do see light. So fountain of life is the first concept. For with you is a fountain of life. Talking about God. And then the other concept that we saw, let me read Proverbs 14, 27 again. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The second concept is fear of the Lord. And we see in Proverbs chapter 1, verse number 7, that the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. I want you to see this right away. It defines wisdom. Wisdom is the, 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 the beginning of knowledge is fear of the Lord. And fools despise it. So in reality, what are fools despising? Or who? Fools despise God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we see that right off the bat. So we could summarize it this way. God is a fountain of life. And by fearing him, we begin taking on the character of God. You like that? God is the fountain of life, and by fearing him, we begin taking the character of God. Now, with that as an introduction, let's stand and we'll read our passage, our verse together, and we'll pray. We'll circle back around. Proverbs chapter 10, verse number 11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this promise from Proverbs chapter 10 that the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. My prayer this whole week has been that you will put in all of us the desire that our words become a fountain of life. Lord, I ask that you will do what only you can do. My words cannot change people and change their hearts, but your word can and your Holy Spirit does. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you so much. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Let me say it another way. 
Dear brother and sister in Christ, your mouth, the words that you speak, the words from your mouth can bring life. Do you believe that? Your words can be so life-giving that they can be like a cool, refreshing fountain in the heat and darkness, or the heat and dryness of this present world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your words, by the God, the Bible is teaching, that your words can draw people to the life-giving Lord of the universe. Isn't that exciting? I want that. I want that for me. I want that for you. I want that to be the overriding character of all our conversations in the church. Now let's turn this over just a little bit more, this concept, and let's look at a couple verses back to back, will you? Proverbs 14, 27, I want to circle back around to that verse now. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, so that one may turn from the snares of death. So that one may turn away from the snares of death. To fear the Lord means that we stand in awe of the majesty and power and justice and holiness and grace of God. And when we do that, we turn from the snares of eternal death. That's what this is talking about here. Eternal death. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. God is eternal life. And so to turn to Him, to practice fear of Him, to be in awe of Him and His majesty and His glory automatically turns you from death to life. Isn't that great? God is a fountain of life. And so we see two things here. First, not only is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom, but the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And if we fear the Lord, then we become wise and we have genuine eternal life. But there's a second thing. When we have genuine eternal life, God's our source of life, and we're turning to Him, this changes everything about us. Everything. Including the second concept that I want to put back to back with this. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. And so when you turn to God, the fountain of life, and He's the source of all your sustenance. He's who you hunger and thirst for, and you're turning to Him, then your words become a fountain of life. I, I take the phrase snares of death to mean two things. And I, I want to I flesh this out. First, if we are going to turn people from the snares of death, then the way that we do this is to proclaim the eternal gospel. And when we proclaim the eternal gospel to dead people, there is now the opportunity for dead people to turn from the snares of death 
and turn to life. Isn't that what the gospel does? The gospel brings life. Would you agree with me about that? The second thing that we can see from this passage then is our words also can turn other believers from those activities and behaviors that the dead do. That is why the New Testament tells us to walk according to the Spirit. Don't do the deeds of the flesh. And so when we see somebody who's a believer doing those deeds, which are the deeds of death that dead people do, we warn them and turn them from those and turn them to the deeds that living people do. So those are two ways that our words can be a fountain of life. But here's a more basic question I want to answer First of all, what is a fountain of life? What is that fountain of life? Very simple answer, God is that fountain of life. God is that fountain of life. We see that in Psalm 36, 8 and 9, where God tells us that the children of man feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. I love that little phrase. For with you is a fountain of life, And in your light do we see light. The reason that righteousness is a life based upon true wisdom, and true wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord roots people in God himself and keeps us close to him in personal fellowship, and God and God alone is the ultimate, self-replenishing, inexhaustible fountain of life. And so we feast on that abundance. Don't you want that? Don't you want to truly live, to have your life a true, to be truly going to the source of life? You know, a lot of times we hear from people to say, you know, you need to live. You, you, you need to really live. And typically what they mean by that is you need to experience all that this world has to offer. You know, you need to, whatever it is, take the vacations, uh, the, the career, the job, whatever it is, you really need to live. But the Bible tells us that to really live is to feast on the fountain of life. Drink from it and drink deeply. And so <clears throat> we feast on God. And when we do that, then we see that the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life because God is a fountain of life the righteousness live on God. Now, who doesn't want abundant life? Who, who got up January 1st of this year and said, you know what? My goal this year is to not have an abundant life. Anybody say that? Anybody wake up and say, you know what? I don't want to really live life this year. I just want to whatever. Nobody says that. Everybody wants abundant life. Who doesn't want cool refreshment? Who doesn't want the nourishment and the life that comes from constant fellowship with God? We all want that. We all desire that. If My guess is if you're in Christ today, if you're a believer, you're feeling that little bit of desire right now. This world is dry, and I want life. I want to feast on who God is. But there's a second thing that I, I want to, us to see, and that is that the more we feast from the fountain of life, the more our words will be 
a fountain of life. The more we feast, the more it changes our words. The fountain of life imagery in the Bible is so beautiful. It goes all the way back to the Exodus when Moses struck the rock. I don't know if, if you've ever seen pictures of uh, Jebel Mesa where uh, they, they think the Mount Sinai is in the Sinai Peninsula. It is, there's nothing living out there. It's just mountains and rocks. That's all it is. And somewhere in there were the children of Israel. And Psalm 104, or I'm sorry, 105, verse 41 says, And he opened the rock, and water gushed out, and it flowed through the desert like a river. Isn't that a wonderful image? In the middle of this hot desert, Moses struck the rock. And we know from the New Testament that that rock was Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians tells us that. He struck the rock, and the rock brought forth a river of water in that hot desert. Wouldn't that be refreshing? And the Lord promised a day in the future, in Isaiah 41, when the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys, and I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. This is talking about spiritual life. This is talking about spiritually dry, spiritually parched. And when you're spiritually parched, you turn to the Lord, and the Lord will cause pools of water, and, and he'll make dry, uh, dry land to spring up with water. It reminds me of an old hymn. Nobody in the first service corrected me. I said, I don't know if this is a hymn or an old gospel song, but it's one of them. And it's called Springs of Living Water. You remember that song? Some of you do. I thirsted in the barren land of sin and shame, and nothing satisfying there I found. But to the blessed cross of Christ one day I came, where springs of living water did abound. And the, the chorus is, Drinking at the springs of living water, happy now am I, my soul they satisfy, drinking at the springs of living water, a wonderful and bountiful supply. And that's a picture of everyone who comes to Christ, right? God is the one who satisfies parched and dry souls and quenches thirst. And as these souls drink from the water of life, more of that life is imparted to their souls. You say, but Jared, the, the Exodus verse and the, the or the, uh, the Psalm 105 verse and things, those are in the Old Testament, and this imagery is physical, not spiritual. Some of you may be arguing that way, except that God said in Jeremiah chapter 2, for my people have done two evils. They, they have forsaken me, the fount of what? Living waters, right? He's the fount of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And I've talked about earlier, uh, this is the whole world, isn't it? The whole world is hewing out cisterns that cannot satisfy. What are those cisterns? Well, some of those cisterns are sex and money and entertainment and political victories 
and children and marriage and career and on and on and on. And none of these things satisfy and none of these things give life. They don't give any kind of life whatsoever. And the world is hewing cisterns. Will you permit me to change analogies for just a minute? I don't care if you do or not, I'm going to. I'm going to change analogies, all right? Let's think about this. Most of you know that um, I love the night sky. I spent four months in some of the nation's clearest skies with long, dark nights without my telescope. Don't you feel sorry for me? Yeah, uh, you're, you're so good. It was hard. I got one little reprieve when I came back here in January. Ben Lieb and I went out with our telescopes, and it was a glorious night. But I want you to think about something. There is so much beauty in, in the night sky in the wintertime. As beautiful as the double cluster in the Orion Nebula, which you see here, how as beautiful as they are, you know what they don't do? They don't give warmth to our atmosphere. As beautiful and grand and glorious as the Whirlpool Galaxy and the Andromeda Galaxies are, by the way, the Andromeda Galaxy, I don't know if you know this about it, if you're in a dark sky, you can see it naked eye. When I lived in northern Wisconsin, I could see it. Um, here you can't in Culpeper, but you can see it. As glorious and bright and beautiful as they are, they do not give enough light for plants to grow. As bright as Jupiter and Venus are in the night sky, you know what they don't do? They don't give us enough light to see anything anywhere. And so in, in Phoenix, Mesa, I'd see the night sky, and then in the mornings, the sun would rise over the usury and superstition mountains. And you know what? Its glory far exceeded the glory of the night sky. Because when the sun came up, the stars you could see no longer. Because it's more glorious, right? When the sun came up, suddenly I'm not just seeing the beauty of the sky I'm seeing the beauty of everything all around me. I'm seeing, uh, as, a, as it warmed up, uh, the, the Mexican poppies. They went from the valleys and all the way up the mountainside. This, this picture was taken. It's steep. It's, the angle's probably like that. Mexican poppies, as far as the eye could see down the mountainside from all the rain that we had. And it was just glorious and beautiful. And you could drive out in the desert and see whole fields of yellow beautiful beauty why were they there because of the warmth of the sun and the warmth of the sun caused the butterflies and the hummingbirds to fly during the day and the light from the sun feeds the plants and this is the difference between everything else and god the night sky can't cause anything to grow the night sky doesn't make you see anything. The night sky doesn't give you warmth. And everything else that we turn to to give us life gives us no life 
And as glorious as they look, their glory uh, pales in comparison to the glory of Almighty God. Because God gives us life, doesn't he? God shows us what true beauty is. God shows us what gives us life everlasting. And so his beauty is so much greater than anything else. Everything else is just cisterns. Everything else is just the night sky. He's the fountain and he's the sun. And so we, the more we feast from the fountain of life, the more our words will be a fountain of life. Now, Jesus said that we can know a lot about a person by the words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the way God means to change our mouths is by becoming that abundance. He, he means to be the fountain of life for each of us and in us so that out of the abundance of our mouths can be the fountain of life to others. And if we're feasting on the abundance of Christ, then our words will not be dry. The righteous person lives off the abundance of God moment by moment. And just like Israel in the wilderness, the manna that they received, you cannot tank up on the grace of God. You can't tank up on the life-giving power of God. It's a day-by-day feasting. It's a day-by-day eating. Just like the manna came day-by-day, God is the same way. God brings what we need every single day. And so to, to feast on God, to make him the fountain of life, means to live in God, feed on God, drink on God, fellowship with God, learn all your wisdom from God. Uh, Revelation twenty two seventeen says, The spirit and bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And the one who desires, listen to this, to take the water of life without price. And that is Jesus Christ. The fountain of life is free and it reproduces fountains in the one who, ones who drink of it. Now I said earlier that the more we feast from the fountain of life, the more our words will be a fountain of life. Now here's a question I want to answer. How? How do our words... How, how do our, we make our words a fountain of life? You ever wondered that? How do we do it? Proverbs addresses it with imagery, general things. And so uh, I want to take the images of Proverbs and show how the, our words can become a fountain of life to others. Number one, the first way that we can become a fountain of life with our words is nutrition. What do I mean? The Bible says that the lips of the righteous feeds many. The lips of the righteous feed many. Our souls are naturally hungry. And so what comes out of our mouths should feed the hunger of the soul. Have you ever been around someone who just spending a few minutes or an hour with that person just fills you spiritually and gives you more of a desire to know God and to be with God and love God? Have you ever been around that kind of a person? That's what it's describing The lips of the righteous feed many. A righteous person loves God. They talk about God. And so when they're around other believers, the things that they say encourages that person to become more like God, encourages that person to know God better, to, to appreciate God better, and it actually gives you strength for the journey as well. Your words can be that kind of words. Don't you want to be that kind of a person? I do. 
The second way from Proverbs that our words become found in the life is in healing. The Bible says that there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I'm going to camp here for just a minute. I need to give a... um, Anyway, I'll just say it. You'll know what I'm saying when I say it. I believe that because we are believers, Christians living in a dry and barren land, that the bulk of our words should encourage and be positive, right? Because, as the Psalms say, we're in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, and we, we get our water from God. So our primary job should be to encourage. Our words should bring healing. But this is not the same thing as saying that our words should be nice. Okay? Healing words can be salve, but sometimes they need to be like a surgeon's knife. Our cultural discourse in such disarray, I heard somebody in a podcast say this. I want to say it to you, see if you agree. I heard somebody in a podcast say, um, in the West, we have sacrificed truth on the altar of nice. In the West, we have sacrificed truth on the altar of nice. What do you mean? Well, we now live in a culture where to affirm that there are only two sexes is hate speech. That is hateful and ugly to say that. We, we live in a culture where to um, call women ladies is microaggression. And you can lose your job for that. These are the extreme examples in our culture, right? But this is the direction that our culture is moving. You, you have to be nice. But this idea that we need to be nice and not say anything that might be offensive has also crept into the church. To the degree that in the church, and I'm talking about not just this church, but all churches, to say, he hurt my feelings is a charge on the same level as sin. And you can literally say, that person did something wrong because he hurt my feelings, and people will treat it like that person sinned. Now, why were your feelings hurt? That's a question to ask. Were your feelings hurt because that person was genuinely ugly? You know, they said, uh, when I was a kid, this may be as politically incorrect as, you can correct me afterwards, but I remember when we were a kid, we would insult somebody and say, your mother wears combat boots. You ever heard that one? Any old school? Okay, so some people do remember that, right? Okay. Um, and so um, that person, is that how ugly they were when they hurt your feelings? Or were your feelings hurt because that person was actually telling, speaking truth to you in love and turning? And so niceness is not the same as being loving. Is it kind to say nice words and allow someone to keep on sinning? 
Is it kind not to warn a sinner of the path that they are on? Listen to Proverbs chapter 27, verse number 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A friend is going to tell you the truth, and sometimes it hurts. They're going to do it, though, in the right way, whereas an enemy is going to be nice and butter you up, but they have no good intentions for you. Sometimes love for one another dictates that we do say hard things. For example, Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any kind of transgression, you who are spiritual should restore such a one. So at this point, you may have to say some hard words, direct words, uh, words that may cause a little bit of a wound. But Paul explains how we do this because the verse finishes this way, in the spirit of gentleness. And so we do it in the spirit of gentleness. When you love someone, you labor to give life to someone by exposing the cancerous transgressions in their lives. And removing cancer is a painful and difficult thing, but in order to have life, it must be removed. Ask me how I know, and I'll tell you. It's painful and it's hard to allow things to stay is to allow someone to stay in the snares of death. Remember, the words of the righteous are like a fountain of life that keeps someone out of the snares of death. Does that make sense? And so sometimes Christians get caught in the snares of death. They're doing those activities that the dead do, and we need to warn them about it. But again, most of the time, our words should be encouraging, shouldn't they? And, 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 helping someone along. Let me give you a third way that Proverbs says that our words are a fountain of life. The Bible says, the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. This is salvation. So our words can be nutrition, our words can be healing, and our words can be salvation. You know, this word delivers, see where it says the upright delivers them? Very fascinating word. Let me give you a word picture. The word is the idea of snatching someone from danger. We've all seen it happen. Probably all of us at one time or another has seen a toddler running towards the pool and right at the last minute, dad reaches out and snatches him. You've seen it, right? That's the idea here. The idea is that the righteous, the words of the righteous is going to deliver somebody from the throes of death. It's, it's the words of salvation. Our words are a fountain of life when we warn the lost about the coming day of the Lord, when we call on people to repent and believe the gospel, when we give the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. These are all things that make our words a fountain of life. We, we give the, the plan of salvation. In the assembly, we can follow the instruction of Ephesians Chapter 4, verse number 29, where it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Isn't that hard? It's hard, isn't it? I mentioned uh, in the Friday email, and it's absolutely true, uh, I was excited to preach this morning because, A, this is so encouraging. 
And I'm going to get to the encouragement in just a minute. It's so encouraging. But do you know what else happened to me this week? Conviction. Conviction. Because the Holy Spirit put in my heart and in my mind times, specific instances, when as a pastor, my words were not a fountain of life. That grieves me. That grieves me. And so my prayer all week was, Lord, help me to be the kind of person whose words are a fountain of life. I want, I want that for myself. But I was convicted and encouraged all at the same time. But isn't it hard? Isn't it? Everybody's so quiet this morning. First service, they were talking back to me. I'm not saying they're better than you. I'm saying you're quieter than them. So It is hard. I'll tell you how hard it is. You ready? Impossible. Impossible. Here's what James says. No human being can tame the tongue. That's about as impossible as it gets, isn't it? No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. No human being can tame the tongue. Now James goes on to describe our ways accurately because he says this, with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And then he says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Isn't that convicting? Have you ever done that? We have all done that. Every single one of us have done that. And James says it's impossible for us to tame our tongue. Now, here's the question, because I don't want to leave you in despair. If no human being can tame our tongues, then what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? I already gave you the answer. And this is the good news. You know what the good news is? No human being can tame the tongue, but God can make our words a fountain of life. How? When we feast on the abundance of the delights of our eternal God, when we drink from the fountain of life, and as we drink from that, we become more like him. And as we become more like him, we, our words become more like his words. And as we become more like him, we ask the Lord to make our words a fountain of life. That's the good news, isn't it? And so in reality, this is a call for you to feast on God daily. Do you desire that your words refresh? Do you? I do. I want my words to refresh. I want my words not only to please God, but I want my words to give life. So I close with some probing questions. Let me ask you some questions. 
Does your mouth usually feed people with the truth and substance of what you say? Or does it starve people through silence or empty speech? And that speech could be to your children, to your family, to your friends. Let me ask you another question. Does your mouth usually heal people with words of grace and love and kindness? Or does it wound people with insensitive, harsh, critical, unhelpful words? If you answer... My mouth is too seldom a fountain of life. There's too much starving and wounding and attacking. It comes far too naturally. Then remember this. The problem is that we're not living on God as our abundance and treasure. We, we have turned from the abundance of God's feeding and God's healing and God's deliverance. And we instead have turned, sought our joy and hope in other things cisterns and night skies and our mouths bear witness that we have forsaken the fountain of living life a fountain of life and our hearts are starving and sick and threatened so i if that is the case then i ask you to return again with me to the fountain of living water don't you want the, your words to be characterized as refreshing and encouraging and God-honoring and turning people from the snares of death to life? Lord, as, as I have prayed so many times already this week, you know, I prayed before the sermon. I pray again. I ask that your Holy Spirit will create a desire in us to know you greater, to love you greater, to fear you greater, and implant a desire in us that every word we speak will be a fountain of life to the hearer. Lord, we confess that this is a completely impossible task for humans to do. It's a task that only you are up to, only your Holy Spirit can do. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you will turn our words, turn our hearts. I ask that we will be characterized as people who have the words of life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.